how radiology links to sustainability is that we use a lot of energy, not only to power our MRI units and our CT units, but we also have a large environmental footprint on the production side. And that's really important to think of that it's not just the kind of plug and play type, you know, using electricity within the hospital, it's the whole supply chain. And there is a growing body of data that tells us really we have a huge footprint. It is massive. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kate Hanneman. Dr. Hanneman is an associate professor and vice chair of research at the University of Toronto and a clinician scientist at the Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. She is co-chair of the Canadian Association of Radiologists Sustainability Working Group and deputy lead of sustainability at the Joint Department of Medical Imaging and University Medical Imaging Toronto. She is an associate editor with Radiology, the Journal of Cardiovascular Magnetic Resonance and the Canadian Association of Radiologists Journal and leads an active research program focused on improving health outcomes for patients using cardiac imaging. I am not sure, so I hope I don't offend anyone, but I think you might be our first Canadian we've had on the podcast. You exist at the intersection of many of the interests of myself personally and our listeners in sort of driving cardiac imaging research forward, which is in a very exciting time as a field, but also sort of the burgeoning phase of sustainability and, and like what radiology sustainability, is there something there? So there's so much fun stuff to talk about. So thank you for joining. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And we are definitely going to have fun today. Awesome. So tell us about you, Dr. Hanneman, where are you from? How did you find your way into radiology. And then from there, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. I love this question. I will start with where, you know, I did not think I was going to be a radiologist when I was growing up. So it's always kind of a fun path to how I got where I am. And I grew up in a small town in Alberta, which uh, for those of you that are Canadian, you know, kind of like rural Texas, I think my parents both grew up on farms. Nobody in my family is a doctor. I always loved science and I knew I wanted to be a doctor from a really young age because I was quite sick when I was uh, six and I was in the hospital and it was, you know, uh, obviously a bewildering experience. I'm, I'm fine now, but that time in the hospital, you know, was just so pivotal in terms of me thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And really from that moment, like honestly, from age six onwards, if anyone asked me what I wanted to do, I said I was going to be a doctor. And when I said that, I always meant that I would be a pediatrician because um, the pediatricians had, you know, played such an important role in my life. And so I believed that really all the way until I got to med school. And I ended up in med school in Toronto, much to my uh, parents and my very large extended family in Alberta as uh, dismay. Uh, I think everyone was a bit surprised. I, I did my undergrad in Alberta. I'd grown up in a yeah, fairly small community. And I decided to go to Toronto for med school. It was a bit of a leap of faith. I had never been to Toronto before my med school interview. Um, my world was very small. So that was eye-opening. And during med school, I did some electives, mostly pediatrics. And, you know, I realized it wasn't the right fit for me. I was doing a pediatric oncology rotation. And I, I thought, I'm a sensitive soul. This is not for me. And it was kind of late in the game to be thinking about a, a competitive specialty like radiology. And I, you know, I really just want to acknowledge that someone at U of T, you know, really mentored me. Um, this is Dr. Jaffer, who 
lot of body people will know he is phenomenal. He's mentored a lot of people in Toronto and he really helped me. And he just inspired me so much that, you know, literally in the course of a two-week elective, I did a hard pivot. It was very late in the game. I had barely any time to do more radiology electives. And I got in, I got in Toronto and, you know, the rest is history. And so that's really how I ended up here. And, you know, similar kind of a bit of luck thrown in, in terms of how I found cardiac imaging. And once I found it, it was like, love at first sight for me. And, you know, I, I did some of my training in the US, my fellowship and yeah. And now I'm back in Toronto. That's an amazing story. And it's funny. I th- I'm trying to think of all the people that I've talked to about their story. I don't know that I've ever had a six-year-old who chose medicine, who wasn't told from their parents that they should be a doctor. You meet a lot of people whose parents are doctors. And they're saying, hey, you know, from a young age, this is the path for you. But to find it on your own and then stick with it is like super cool. Yeah. And I mean, I've told the story a number of times now and most People have a similar reaction that you know, it's quite unique. Um, one, just being sick enough to be in the hospital, but you know, also just coming from a small community, not having doctors in your family. And I have to say, my parents were just so supportive. I, you know, I've never really asked them, you know, did you really believe that I was going to do it? But I, I, like, I never wavered. I, I really went all the way through, and uh, to their credit, they did whatever they could to support me. But uh, no, it's a long journey, uh, thinking all the way back. And certainly, when I was six, I did not think I'd be a radiologist. I, obviously don't think I knew what a radiologist was at that time. So I'm lucky I found the specific path that I did. We'll get into your current work in a second, but I want to go into mentorship for a quick second because I get asked a lot about mentorship in particular. And a lot of young people that work on my team ask, you know, how do I find mentors? And I'm curious to, with rising workloads, you know, when the med students rotate and I can remember Taylor on maybe not her best day, just saying, oh, the med students there, they're so annoying and whatever. And so sorry, Taylor, to, I'm sure you were really lovely and pleasant and, and helpful to the poor med student, but you know, you're trying to get your work done. It's, so how do you think about that experience? Has anything changed since then? Have you been able to, you know, pay it back or pay it forward, I, I suppose? Oh, well, I don't want to give myself too much credit because this, you know, the mentor-mentee relationship is a two-way street and I really view it as you know being so fulfilling for lack of a better word being on the mentor side and like I view myself in both roles I have mentors still and I think those are really important no matter what stage of your career you're at and I have mentees and I have a lovely um, medical student that I've been mentoring this year who uh, is applying to radiology and so I'm really excited actually have been reflecting on my experience and you know finding someone that really was a champion for me and we published a paper together and you know he's he's a fantastic medical student and there, there are many and I've had many opportunities I, I hope to pay it forward and, and to share that but to kind of get back to your point about how do you find mentors or are they important maybe you know there was an undertone of that in your question you know I have found many of my most productive or successful mentor-mentee relationships have in some ways happened organically, for lack of a better word. They've happened outside of like structured mentorship programs, which I think have a role. I'm not dissing them, but I have often found that the relationships that have really somehow clicked have just occurred more organically. Maybe it's because I'm a very chatty person. I'm sure you've gathered. Um, And so, you know, Making connections, you know, is something, you know, I think I'm generally good at. And so, but yeah, these relationships are so important. And some of them have spanned many years. Some mentors, you know, play a role for a shorter period in your life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think there's different mentors for different times and different aspects of your life. 
Yeah. One of my earliest mentors I met on a plane. So helps to be chatty a little bit. I think too, it's it's hard to force. So so the person that you're mentoring, how, how did you build a relationship with this person? The medical student I was referring to specifically, you know, emailed me and I get a lot of emails, you know, from research fellows that are interested and, and so forth. But, you know, always these emails that have some sort of hook for lack of a better word, some, something that's like a personal connection or, or something. And this is an individual who, you know, also grew up in a smaller town and, and had an interest in actually we wrote an article published in the Canadian Association of Radiologist Journal. And I'm just going to highlight it because it was kind of unique. And I actually tried to say no, but the student was like, you know, I really want to write this article on challenges in rural and remote radiology. And I'm just going to acknowledge right off the bat, I, yes, I grew up in a small town, uh, but it's been a long time since I lived there and I've never practiced. And so I had to say, like, we are going to need to pull in some other experts who you know, really have content expertise on this. But I'm happy to help you from the writing perspective. And it was just really fun. So I do think the personal connection, that is not something you can necessarily grasp by email or even in a first meeting. But that clicking between people in terms of just how your personality's mesh is so important and you know in friendships and professional relationships, but also in that mentee mentor relationship as well. Well, there's a lot of good advice in there, but let's take it to present day. So you're you're at the Department of Medical Imaging at the University of Toronto. Tell us about the group and like the context, anything different. You know, you've worked in the American context, you worked in the Canadian context. Is it just like a bog standard academic program? Is there something slightly different to the mix there? Kind of walk us through a little bit. What does the world look like that you swim in and then your role and, and, and from there? Yeah, so this is, I love this question. This is great. No one's asked me this for a long time because the Canadian healthcare system is obviously unique from like the public payer perspective. And I think most people kind of think about that. But the other thing about our academic departments is that they're very consolidated. So in Toronto, huge city, obviously largest in Canada, we have one medical school. We have one residency program, which is you know, completely different than if you think of how many residency programs there would be in, you know, any U.S. city. So it is very different. The residents, and I did residency here uh, as well, you know, go to all the hospitals. They go to the different groups. And so the actual group structure, like the partnerships or however they're actually structured from a tax perspective varies, but, you know, the financial groups are smaller little pockets of radiologists. And, you know, my group is around 100 radiologists, so largest in the city, and we fall under the university umbrella. But that's quite different, you know, certainly from most of the U.S. academic centers where there might be like, you know, five medical schools and five residency programs in a city, for example. And so it's definitely a different way of kind of approaching training. Trainees have a much more broad perspective, but, you know, also there's a lot of change. And so there's some challenges that go along with that. And so, you know, from my day-to-day, -day, my work is in one of the groups within the University of Toronto that falls under that umbrella. I work in one of the larger groups in Toronto, uh, University of Medical Imaging Toronto, and we have one of the cardiac centers that falls under that. But then my roles as vice chair, for example, that's at the university level. So there's different layers and the umbrella is a bit different. So different. I mean, I, I don't know the population of Toronto, but in my head, it's the same as Chicago. I've been to both cities and they seem the same to me. I don't know if that's accurate, but at least with an order of magnitude. There's a lot of similarities. I think we're in the right ballpark. Yeah. I mean, you've got just in Chicago, like a half dozen programs just in downtown Chicago. Um, and that's residency programs, not to mention all the private radiology groups that have nothing to do with any sort of academic appointment. So is, is University Medical Imaging Toronto then a private group that serves the academic group? How do you think about it? 
No, I, I mean, I wouldn't phrase it as such. I mean, I think the, the constructs just don't exist exactly as they do in the U.S. So it's a group of radiologists. My group covers multiple hospitals and, in fact, actually covers three hospital systems, all of which have affiliations with the University of Toronto. So it's, it's truly an academic group, um, and we are all read imaging studies in all of the hospital systems that fall under our umbrella. But that's a bit unique. There's another group at Sunnybrook Hospital, for example, um, which is within Toronto and also falls under the University of Toronto umbrella. And we do do kind of cross-city rounds, for example, and things like the vice chair role, which I hold, span all of those different groups. But again, we're, you know, a bit arm's length from the university, I guess, but, but truly function within an academic center. So tell us about the mix of your roles, academics, research, and, and clinical practice or anything else beyond those three? Yeah. So this has recently shifted a little bit with my new university role as vice chair research, right? You know, now I've dedicated a mid time for that role, which has been really great. It's been a lot of work to get my feet under me and, and that, that, that started just a few months ago. But in my kind of more day-to-day work, I do two days clinical. Those are cardiac MRI and CT. Predominantly, almost all my research has focused on cardiac MRI and clinical outcomes. I have a background in epidemiology and stats. And so I'm uh, truly a numbers person. Then I have two days, in addition to the two days clinical, I have two days that are dedicated research days. So those are protected days. And then my admin time. So for me, that's a really good mix. I wouldn't want to drop down to less than two days a week of clinical. I love it. And I actually find that my quote unquote best research ideas come on my clinical days. You know, really thinking about what are the questions we're grappling with? What are the new diseases we're seeing? And, and so forth. So. Well, I, I buy that. Absolutely. I mean, the difference between theory and practice is everything. And so to be practicing and then switching between theory and practice on a regular basis is probably where the, the magic is made. And so then on your clinical days, do you have residents or, or fellows rotating through? Yeah, both. Mm-hmm, we do. We have a large number of fellows. Our division is combined cardiothoracic and vascular. Mostly I, I do cardiac just because that's kind of my main area of interest in expertise and really what my fellowship was focused on. And so, yeah, we have eight fellows that you know, rotate around. Not all of them would be with us in cardiac, for example. And then we have residents and, you know, occasionally there'll be medical students. And, and we also have cardiology trainees in addition to our radiology trainees. So we're truly a very collaborative group. And in cardiac imaging in particular, as you might imagine, it's, you know, it's very multidisciplinary and I'm a very big supporter of that. I think that's really important that we you know, don't draw lines in the sand based on what residency training program you went to. So what is the cardiac imaging sales pitch? And I realize the audience can vary. So let's say a person, a young person, maybe a resident thinking about what they want to do, why should they do cardiac imaging? So that's one audience. And then I think the other audience that I'm interested in is like, if you just observe radiology from the outside and you're like, radiology is super interesting, but it's such an onion that you have to peel back. Like, why is cardiac imaging interesting at the world stage? Was such an obvious answer to me, but I'll, I'll try to answer, answer it from like a very practical point of view. It's just clearly the best. I don't know what else to tell you. I'm going to be like a little cheeky here, but I mean, like we have the coolest images. Like, you know, we have parametric maps that are colorful and I know body imaging and neuroimaging does that now too, but like, you know, we really embrace that early on. We also have movies. We look at the heart beating. We've really moved beyond, you know, 2D and we, we did a long time ago. So obviously we 
beat to the cardiac cycle. We look at things in not only three dimension, but also, you know, time is the fourth dimension. So really, you know, it's so cool. The other thing about cardiac imaging that I love, and I said this before, but you're going to hear it again. I love numbers. And so cardiac imaging is quite quantitative, more so than most other subspecialties in radiology, where, you know, on cardiac MRIs, we would routinely be, you know, quantifying how big is the heart, how well is it contracting, you know, the ejection fraction, and so forth. And so that's you know, we integrate all of those numbers into our report. So not only do you look at the images, you, you know, take the quantitative piece and you put it all together. So for all those reasons, I love it. And then, you know, kind of from the patient perspective, I think about, well, cardiovascular disease is a broad category, you know, is such an important player in terms of driving adverse outcomes, you know, deaths due to cardiovascular disease broadly. And so I love it because we can have such a big impact we can really answer questions that other imaging modalities like echo for example can't answer we do it non-invasively and i really think we you can kind of see when you do a follow-up study for example or you hear from the clinicians how much of an impact we have and i know other areas of radiology would say you know that's that's true elsewhere and, and, and that is probably true with a grain of salt so i think cardiovascular disease really imaging plays such an important role and so i think for me i usually leave my clinical days feeling like wow, like I answered some really cool questions and hopefully I help improve patient outcomes. So great sales pitch. I'm very excited now. My wife is a neuroradiologist, so I'm more used to looking at brains than I am hearts. And at this point, a brain, at least you can tell pretty quickly if there's something like really bad wrong. I don't know if the heart works the same way. So cardiac imaging, it's surprising to me that it's not more utilized, like just 10,000 foot view you know, the number of mammograms or the number of brain MRIs, I assume is like 10 times the number of cardiac MRs and cardiac CTs. So why is that? And are these things appropriately utilized or is there like going to be, no, 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 this thing's going to go and here's why. And like, what is the dynamics like? Yeah, I think you've touched on something I was going to, you know, say again, a bit tongue in cheek when I was answering the last question about cardiac imaging is a bit niche. And I like that, you know, I kind of like being a little bit weird and wonderful. So that's part of, I guess, part of the appeal to me. <laughs> and I do mean that in a teasing sort of way. I do think there's a lot of opportunity to expand cardiac imaging appropriately. Like I'm not advocating for doing it indiscriminately, but definitely, as you alluded to, the volumes in general are much lower than you know, other body parts. And and part of that is because part of cardiac imaging has traditionally fallen, you know, under cardiology where you know, echo is very appropriately so the first imaging test that many cardiac patients will have, and, and that's very reasonable, and that provides adequate information in many cases. So I think there is increasing understanding among clinicians about the role of cardiac imaging. We can use an example of calcium score CT where, you know, family doctors or even community cardiologists, you know, might not have routinely been ordering uh, coronary calcium scores in the past. And I think there is increased awareness of the role they play. That's partly driven by guidelines, of course, and, and, and so forth. But we need to do better education in terms of, of pitching uh, cardiac imaging and what it can do. So what are some of the other major trends in cardiac imaging? And what are you doing in your research? What are you looking into? So my research has been really focused on how can we use cardiac imaging to improve outcomes and you know, that sounds very high level because it is. So really I'm interested mostly in risk prediction. How can we use cardiac imaging to identify who's gonna have a bad outcome? Who might benefit from either being followed more closely or having even an implanted defibrillator put in 
so that, you know, if they have a bad thing happen, we identify that in advance, you know, they get shocked instead of dropping dead and needing CPR. That's kind of an example. And a lot of my research is focused on patients who have cardiomyopathies where they're at risk of arrhythmias or heart rhythm disturbances that might, you know, lead to a sudden cardiac death event, for example. And so I'm really interested in the role of cardiac imaging there. I think the kind of second main avenue that cardiac imaging really needs to embrace and, and lean into is multimodality imaging, really integrating the findings across modalities. This can be very explicit in the setting of PETMR, and I, I'm a big fan of PETMR. It definitely has not gained broad access, definitely not in Canada, but even in the U.S. I think there's some niche applications, cardiac sarcoidosis, for example, but I'm really interested in that. But even you know, beyond kind of the actual combined imaging unit, you know, how can we integrate the echo findings with our cardiac MRI, you know, more seamlessly? How can we pull in all the biochemical data that's now available in our electronic health records? And I think AI is going to really help us in that regard to actually integrate this huge amount of data that we have on all of our patients in the electronic health record and in images, some of which we're not even you know, looking at the pixel level data is just so massive on our imaging studies and actually trying to integrate that to improve patient outcomes. So that is something I really interested. That's a bit future forward looking, but I hope we get there. Well, I think that feeds into the first one, which is the risk prediction. I assume data about in someone's chart or data in someone's echo layered on top of the cardiac MR can give you a better predictive assessment of their long-term risk. What is the state of affairs in risk prediction today? So I'm in Cincinnati today and I like go to a, a normal place, let's say my, my normal cardiologist, like what is the risk prediction looking like? And then, you know, kind of what's happening in the, at the cutting edge that might be here five, 10 years from now. That is such a good question. And it totally depends on who you are as a patient. So I'm going to assume you're a healthy person because you, you, know, you look like a healthy person and I wish the best for you. And so if you were you know, generally healthy and you were interested in whether you had atherosclerotic coronary disease, for example, you know, a calcium score, as we talked about before, you know, might be a great risk tool if you were asymptomatic to try to understand, well, do you have calcium in your coronary arteries? And now we have a huge body of data to link that to outcomes. So, you know, if you have any calcium, you're a higher risk than if you had none. And it, the more you have, the, you know, the higher risk. So that's a great example of a risk tool in cardiac imaging. In my research, um, I'm more focused on patients who have inherited diseases or other inflammatory conditions in their heart where, you know, usually they will have that diagnosis. I do do some work on trying to use imaging to improve diagnosis as well. But let's assume, you know, patients coming, they know they have this diagnosis. And now we want to understand if they exercise or if they run a marathon, what is their risk of, of dropping dead? And our risk tools for those niche applications are you know, understandably further behind. We just don't have as much data. We have less patients who have that, those specific diseases. And so there are guidelines, but they're not perfect. So definitely we could use an example of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That's kind of one of the diseases where young, visually healthy people can drop dead after they're playing sports. It's obviously very dramatic. It's very traumatic for the families. And that is definitely something we want to avoid. And we have some risk guidelines. They try to integrate the clinical data. They try to integrate the imaging data, but they're not perfect. So what happens is some people are missed. They are deemed lower risk on the risk score, and yet they still have an adverse event. And other people who are deemed higher risk have these devices implanted, and they, you know, they never shock them. And the devices you know, have their own set of risks associated with them. You know, they can get infected, for example, eventually they need to be changed. And so it's not a benign decision to implant them either. And so 
you know, really, I am very interested in how do we refine those. And, you know, I think as we talked about before, there's just so much data that AI has really given us this new tool, for lack of a better word, to try to integrate that and try to, you know, basically improve our prediction. So interesting. Are you focused more on these niche, maybe more pediatric or congenital type populations than people that might have the more standard risk factors of obesity or, you know, smoking or, or things like that? Or is there a role to play in those fields as well that you're looking at? Yeah, I'm going to take a step back and say I'm interested broadly. I think my research had gone down a fairly narrow path. And and it's interesting because once you kind of go down the path and you get known for something, so people email you about, I would say, less common inherited diseases. I'm known as the weird radiologist lady who likes inherited diseases, which is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And so it's interesting. And I actually think a lot of luck comes into that. So I work in an environment that is a very large referral center. So we have clinics for, you know, rare diseases that other centers maybe would have one or two patients, but we have a whole clinic. And so, of course, they get their imaging here. And so it's been a bit of a unique opportunity in my mind to try to study those diseases. And I've been very interested in them. But I am very interested in a more broad perspective in more common diseases like atherosclerotic disease and how we can improve population health more broadly. Last cardiac imaging question for you, because I know we have a lot to hit, and this one was not on the initial list. How have the weight loss drugs started to, have they at all impacted what you're seeing on a daily basis? That is interesting. So, you know, Canada, I think it's like kind of sometimes like a little sister or little cousin where we sometimes lag behind in terms of drug approvals and often how Canada kind of follows along with the FDA. And so I think we're a little bit behind Certainly, you know, within the media in terms of the weight loss drugs and the interest in them and the shortages that, you know, we've experienced many of the same things that the U.S. has in parallel. But I haven't yet seen kind of like concrete data on how this is really going to impact us in terms of the trajectory of disease or when we might see it. But I definitely think that data is coming. People are very interested in it. And, And I'm interested in it, too. It's interesting because this is fairly unique in that, you know, this I don't know if a revolution is the right term, but certainly a class of drugs that has, you know, had broad appeal, you know, was indicated, of course, you know, many of these first for diabetes, now used for another reason, and, and a lot of people are taking them. And so it, it will be very interesting to look at the long-term data. And I'm a, I'm a data person, so I'm really interested in what are the long-term outcomes, what happens over time, and maybe imaging will play a role in tracking that. Well, then we'll have to get together in a few years when Canada comes up the adoption curve. Very interested to see. It's too early to say it's a revolution, but it's also too early to say it's not a revolution and certainly could be very interesting space to watch. So one of the other areas that you've been super interested in is sustainability. And I just bought a new minivan and I bought a hybrid. So minivan, I had my fourth kid on the way. We have outgrown the whole fleet of cars. So call me very interested in doing my part. Um, I also follow very closely the news and trends. And I follow climate change very closely. And I got to be honest, I was very surprised to hear that radiologists cared at all about climate change. It's just my assumption was that this had nothing to do with radiology. So tell me I'm wrong. Why does radiology play any role in this world? Well, first, let's start with congrats. Congrats for the poor child in a way. That's wonderful. And, and congrats on the hybrid vehicle. I, I, you know, these these personal decisions have a really big impact. And I, I actually have a new electric vehicle on the way as well. So I'm excited. Oh, nice. They, they didn't have an electric minivan in my price point yet. 
So thankfully they did have used hybrids at this point, which was good. And then maybe five years from now, uh, 10 years from now, we'll, we'll be ready. I love it. I mean, we are definitely going that way in general. I mean, the automotive industry has has really got it that that's the way that it needs to go. You know, regulations aside, it, you know, there's definitely going to be a move towards that. So I think uh, if you are not alone in questioning what does radiology have to do with climate change and sustainability, and I'll just take a little bit of a step back and that I've been interested in sustainability for a long time. I've followed a plant-based diet for a long time for a number of reasons, and this has kind of been a world that I've been interested in, mostly from a personal perspective. And I have a really close friend who's an environmental lawyer. And I remember two years ago, she sent me some data on some family physicians and some emergency physicians who are doing some really cool work and trying to link healthcare with sustainability. And you know, I obviously was very gracious. I thanked her for the, for the data and I said, you know, but this is for people like not radiologists because radiologists don't have anything to do with climate change. <laughs> and so how wrong am I? And I'm gonna to try to tell you and hopefully your listeners um, why that it, you know, really isn't the case really. We have an important role. And I think the bottom line, if you, know, that you took one thing away from this is that radiology uses a lot of energy. And energy, by and large, depending on where you, you know, where you live and how your where your energy comes from, it is largely derived from burning fossil fuels. And burning fossil fuels, as we know, you know, generates greenhouse gases that contributes to climate change. And there's a whole body of data to support that. So I think that's the kind of basic, you know, at a, at a high level, you know, how radiology links to sustainability is that we use a lot of energy. We use a lot of energy not only to power our, our MRI units and our CT units and that kind of makes sense when you think about how big they are and how much electricity they probably have to consume to create the images. But we also have a large environmental footprint on the production side. And that's really important to think about. It's not just the kind of plug and play type, you know, using electricity within the hospital. It's the whole supply chain. And there is a growing body of data that tells us really we have a huge footprint. It is massive. And with that comes in my opinion and thankfully the opinion of other thought leaders an opportunity to do better and so there is some low-hanging fruit and so there have been many individuals myself included and groups that have really focused on this and I, I think there's been a massive culture shift certainly in the last year maybe we can even say the last one to two years so when you say radiology uses a lot of energy put that in perspective what does that mean what is a lot so this is a matter of debate, and this is something we don't have great data on, but I'm going to start with the healthcare system because you know, I think we all understand radiology fits in as a piece of the puzzle of the global healthcare system. And so healthcare system, we have more concrete data on the estimates in terms of how much greenhouse gases the healthcare system emits vary by country. U.S is the unfortunate winner, it is not going to be a winner in, in this particular race, but U.S. healthcare system generates the highest proportion of greenhouse gases out of the total that U.S. would generate. That's about 8 to up to 10%, depending on the estimate. Other countries, healthcare systems generate about 4% of their total greenhouse gases. That is a lot. That is in the context of the airline industry, of the fossil fuel industry. There have been a few estimates trying to quantify what is radiology's, you know, piece of that pie, for lack of a better word. And one estimate was up to 1% of total global greenhouse gas emissions. We don't have great data. That definitely needs to be confirmed. But if we use that as sort of a starting point, it is probably a reasonable estimate, not like completely off base. That is staggering. That is really, truly staggering. 
And I just want to kind of highlight for listeners that this is, you know, not unreasonable. We now actually have fairly good data that the whole data center industry, so storing all the data we have on the cloud for our music and for our podcasts and for whatever else, uh, all our data from our imaging is now has a larger environmental footprint, so it generates more greenhouse gases than the entire airline industry. So, you know, just to try to put things in context, we often think about flying as, as you know, being very bad for the environment, and, and it is, it, it does generate a lot of greenhouse gases. I'm not saying you shouldn't fly, but, you know, definitely be mindful of it. And I think we just have to really think about from a concrete way, how can we measure the electricity and the energy that we're using in radiology? Yeah, if if radiology were one percent of total emissions as a as a round number, then as a part of healthcare, it would be like ten percent. It's my toddler says uh, monkey math. That's my monkey math. But you know, I I think you could kind of follow the the logic there. So let's say it's ten percent. That would be an outsized impact relative to the radiology's call it revenues or people or case volumes or whatever metric you would want to use, it's, it's definitely less than 10% of the broader healthcare system. So you can at least make a clear case that it is an outsized impact relative to the size. You know, and that is something that, you know, people who question the numbers, and again, I just want to highlight that we need more data. Like I am definitely a data person. I think we need, you know, multiple data points to, to get integrated. But that is something that, you know, people who question really what our impact is will say is, you know, how could it be that high? But I think if you just take a step back and say, we have so much more equipment than most other specialties. You know, like you really can't think of another medical specialty that you know, has huge pieces of equipment that in some cases run 24-7. And so, you know, I think just from a kind of objective perspective, you know, it does make sense that we would have an outside footprint. The other specialty, and I'll just highlight, you know, that has acknowledged they have a huge environmental footprint is, is anesthesiology. And so some of the inhaled anesthetic gases are actually greenhouse gases themselves. So literally putting people to sleep is like putting greenhouse gases in the air. Their specialty is much farther ahead than radiology in general. And I'm not trying to diss us for getting there, but I think we have a lot to learn from what from some of the stuff they've done. The other, you know, large specialty group, for lack of a better word, um, that has really acknowledged sustainability as relating to their scope of practice as surgeons. And their impact is, again, it's a bit different. A lot of their environmental footprint relates to waste. So using single-use supplies in the operating room rather than, you know, in the past where there was people would autoclave and would have reusable supplies. There was a bit of a shift towards single-use supplies and that just basically generates massive amounts of waste and, and that ties in as well. So I think it's really important that we link up with other specialties and, and talk about this from an entire holistic healthcare point of view. But as radiologists, we have to do the deep work, like the deep dive. We have to do the hard work in terms of saying, you know, our imaging equipment, we understand where our workflows are. We're the ones that are going to have to say, okay, like here are some solutions. Here is what we're going to have to do. And we're going to have to make a plan to actually do it. Well, in the uh, coming backlash of AI, as people understand the massive sustainability impact, it's going to be very interesting because the same people that are sort of at the cutting edge of AI are also at the cutting edge of sustainability, and those things are not really in lockstep. So I've got my popcorn out to see how the next few years go. So what in, in this research, like what is it you're doing now? What does success look like this year from a research standpoint? 
Yeah, so for for me, this has been definitely a pivot year in terms of switching gears a little bit, both from kind of like practical leadership perspective, like I have a new role as I share research. I also have a new role as deputy lead of sustainability, which someone asked me the other day, how did I come to be? And I was like, well, I did the work for a year. And then I went to my um, department head, who is lovely and such a great supporter of me, and said, you know, I, I think it would actually just help me to have a little more authority in terms of you know, suggesting some of these changes and bringing people together if I had a leadership role. And she was literally like, absolutely. Well, we, what should we call you? Nobody else is doing the sustainability work yet, so let, let's do it. So, you know, I think sometimes leadership roles are often, you know, you apply for them and you know, there's a structure, but, you know, sometimes there's opportunities and you just got to create them. And uh, that's been really good for me. So I, I'm, I'm excited to start in those roles. But that has meant a bit of a pivot for me in terms of, you know, we talked about kind of my more niche research before and inherited cardiomyopathies, for example. And so really I'm interested in how did these live together in my academic and professional life? How do I balance them? I also have two young kids. I'm not as busy as you are, but still very busy. And of course, I have a lovely husband and, and, and so forth. And so trying to figure out how all of those pieces work together is definitely a work in progress for me. And I'm really interested in advancing research within sustainability. So to get back to what I said before, I think there's more data we need. I think we need more measurement type data in terms of actually measuring and quantifying our impact but we also need measurement data in terms of quantifying the impact of intervention so as we say you know you should turn your scanners off overnight if they're not in use really i think we need data to support implementing those changes more broadly and so i'm a big fan and, and this is actually something i spoke about at rsna last year on what research do i think we need in terms of sustainability as it relates to radiology and, and i'm excited in trying to move that forward Amazing. Well, I know as you shared how busy you are, so I'm going to I'm going to let you go with this last question. What advice do you have for folks entering the field today? It's it's super competitive right now. And then, you know, it's also if you're currently a resident or a fellow, like world's your oyster in terms of what you can do, you know, best job market in a long time. So, what are you saying to the young doctors right now? I would tell them radiology is the best. I and I know that you know, that obviously depends on your individual person and your interests and so forth. But I, I really cannot overstate how much I love my job. I go to work every day, whether that's a clinical day or a research day or a domain day now, and I truly love it. I feel like I help people, whether that's helping the patients or whether that's advancing science, and that brings me so much joy. So I would say, please consider it. It's awesome if you're a medical student. And I recognize your point about it being super competitive. And so to get back to our conversation about mentorship before, you know, really try to find someone who will not only mentor you, but be a sponsor for you. And I think, you know, that, that's a related piece. You need someone who actually will open the doors for you, who will, you know, help you write the paper you want to write, for example, who will get you on committees and so forth. And so those might be the same person, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes you can have mentors and sponsors that are separate. And for the trainees, the residents and the fellows that are already in radiology, you know, one, you've chosen a great field. I think it's exciting. And I think the future is bright. And I do not dwell on some of the negatives that get brought up in terms of creep from other specialists. As I said, I am a big fan of multidisciplinary collaboration on almost all of my cardiac imaging projects. Like I work very closely with my cardiology colleagues or my cardiac surgery colleagues. And to me, that adds value and that collaboration and just thinking about the unique perspective is a positive. And so 
I would tell the trainees, you know, don't just listen to the voices, you know, that are worried about, you know, the just not having a role. I think we passed the thought that AI was going to take our job. We need to move past the thought that other specialties are coming for our jobs. I think we need to think about how can we leverage our unique skill sets to help patients and advance our field. Amazing. Dr. Kate Hanneman, thank you so much for your time today. This was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online. 